Well, hi folks, welcome back to Naturally Adventurous. Uh, this today is Ken and Charlie with our good friend Andres Vasquez, who's been on the podcast before. Um, Andres is a guide for tropical birding. He's written several books, and uh, as I think we described before, just an all-around good guy. And we're really happy to have Andres with us today to talk about South American habitats to continue our series about the habitats of the world. So welcome back, Andres. Hey, thank you, guys. Hey, Charlie. Hey, Ken. Hi, Andres. Happy to be back in, in the podcast. Now, you, you're involved in the, the new book, right, Andres, the one that's going to be specific to South America? I am actually right now at this point for sure, and uh, we'll be working on that in the next couple of years. I was actually initially involved in the, in the Habitats of the World, the, the book that you uh, wrote. I remember that. I was part of it, but I had to bail out of it. <laughs> Reproduce. Really. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, something just happened. Actually, you had I, other actually things my, on your plate, I think. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly when I found out that yeah. my wife was, was pregnant and I was just not going to be having any time <laughs> for these yeah i just didn't want any to regret the rest of the writer so as a family thing no because i think that i was not going to be have i was not going to have time anyways but uh, there is always the the thing saying like ah, i could have been part of this this is an awesome book so uh I cannot regret it. I think that the choice was, it was not even a choice. I had to do it. I didn't want to disappoint anybody else. <laughs> yeah. And and I wanted to have a lot of time for my family. But I, yeah, I, I more than regrets, more like envy, like I'm not there. You know, a little bit of a, <laughs> you know. Well, it's great that you're involved in the next stage. I think these continental books are going to be sweet. That We're going to cover about twice as many habitats as we did in the the whole world book. So Yeah, I know. This is exciting. But for now, uh, we're going to be, it's the same concept as the up other episodes where Andres has picked his five favorite South American habitats as delineated by the first book. And uh, we'll also mm -hmm. cover your least favorite habitat. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. We're going to start with naturally adventurous style top five um, in reverse order. So we're going to start with number five which is the neotropical or Tambesian dry deciduous forest, a place I know very well, found in the southwest of Ecuador and northwest of Peru. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful location. Uh, quite different from what people traveling down to the tropics would expect. You know, this dry tropical forest, and that is part of the charm that makes this particular habitat uh, a very special one for me. In a personal level... Uh, when I was a kid, I used to travel with my parents down to different places in the country. And one of those was the coastal side of Ecuador in, in these uh, southern areas that are affected by the Humboldt Current, which comes from, you know, the Arctic and uh, the Antarctic, sorry, in that as it goes north, it brings dryness to uh, the continental coast. And so it affects this part of, of Ecuador as well. The dry times, because it has a bit of a rainy season, but in the dry, dry times, that is most most of the year, the trees are deciduous. They shed their leaves. And particularly, there is one that it is the most impressive one in the region that is called the Kapok, or the, the Tumbes Kapok mm -hmm. tree. Uh, that it is just beautiful. It's massive. Um, it has a, a, a presence that, you know, is, is mystical for me. It is a large, large tree. Uh, that with no leaves, it is a huge, I mean, it's not super tall, but it, the trunk is really, really uh, thick. And uh, the entire tree without leaves is all green, but like a beautiful green. And it is because during the dry season, this tree has adapted to still uh, do photosynthesis through the trunks and branches. <laughs> and so... Oh, this, amazing. It's, it's a beautiful thing, and, and it is wider part of the trunk, so it stores water as well for the dry times and everything. So, no, the tree is beautiful. But I love the, the Spanish name of this tree. It's called uh, Palo Boracho, right? Uh, some people call it like that because sometimes the trunks twist here and there. Yeah, yeah, you're right in, in some parts. But it looks like a big, fat, drunk person, I guess. Is that the, is that the idea? <laughs> That's, That's the idea, of, when, when the trunks stick. move. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> But but most of them, when they don't have these weird trunks, they they kind of have this very wide central part of the trunk is kind of weird for the for the water that I was telling uh -huh. you. But you know, it uh, my 
I was telling you about the, these trips with my parents. Uh, I remember seeing these trees, and my mother used to uh, tell me the story of this tree that was when the gods created the world, they created this tree, and this tree uh, was a very annoying tree to the gods. Kept on complaining about being put in the Amazon because it's too wet, and being put in the Arctic area because it's too cold, and being put in um, different places, and keep complaining to the gods, and finally the gods decided to just drop it. And the tree fell upside down. And so therefore, the shape of the tree, it looks like a tree that has its roots out because it has no leaves. And so there's an interesting story that afterwards, like many, many years later, I found in a, in a tale that I tell my kids now that it is called actually the Baobab, a tale from Africa or something. So it has a very special yeah. um, part of, of uh, on, on my heart, this particular habitat. And well... I told you a little bit already about the, the, the um, uh, adaptations for the dryness and everything. But apart from that, it is just beautiful to be around. Just as Charlie was mentioning, it has a weird uh, shape of the trees. And then, yeah, no, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful area that you just don't expect when you travel to the, to the tropics. I mean, people would think it's jungle and, and, and more like an Amazon rainforest type of thing. But this is just uh, blows the head out of people sometimes. It's got a massive endemic birds as well i mean there's yeah. just an incredible number of, of birds that are only what? found in that uh that region 30 40 something like that probably even more than that yeah um yeah no it is it is the thing is that the conditions are unique in there so it is in the tropics very close to the equator and it is dry and coastal so for sure, you don't have a lot of diversity, but you have a lot of endemism, meaning that there's things that are there and nowhere else in the world. So uh, you go there around when you go, for instance, birding, and uh, most of the birds that you see is the Tumbes Piwi, the Tumbes Tyrant, the Tumbes These, and the Tumbes That. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> Tumbes, yeah. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's an awesome place. So it, it, it is great when you go birding because you go not, not for huge numbers, but for specials. So, uh, yeah, it has a charm in, in many different, different ways, really. It's not particularly difficult birding either. You know, you can usually no. clean up yeah, pretty that's, easily, you know, compared to some other... Yeah, that, that, that also has a bit of a variation within the season because whenever there is like a dry season, there is almost no leaves around and it's much easier to find the birds and the fir birds for some reason tend to be easier to spot basically because there's less leaves that cover you from that, that cover the bird sure. from your eyesight. <laughs> yep. And so that's kind of easier. But whenever it is wet and you have a lot of uh, leaves, if, if the vegetation has leafed out, then it is a bit more complicated. But normally, yeah, just as you said, you, you can... Uh, kind of clean up most of the time yeah it's got some pretty good looking birds as well you know like white tailed jay and stuff it's um well it's yeah quite cool stuff there yeah yeah exactly it's not only <laughs> it's not only the, the specialty in terms of the the rare things is not that but beautiful things like um the crescent chest that's one of the big big targets there the yeah. uh, elegant crescent chest <laughs> the white tailed jay for sure some um saltators no no a ton a ton of good good stuff there how is endemism in other groups, um, plants and herps and mammals? And are there tons of Tumbesian endemics that are non-avian? In terms of plants, a few things, yes. Um, for some reason, I was talking to these herp people that helped me out in my book with, um, with uh, um, the Wildlife of Ecuador book. And they told me that uh, the herps don't really go too much in terms of the dryness and that it is not affected in terms of endemism as much for some yeah. reason. Uh, I'm not an expert on, on herps, but that's, that's what I heard from them. Yeah, same in Madagascar in the dry western habitats, uh, pretty low herp diversity and not even that many endemics, which is just a function of the dryness, I guess. I would imagine there's pretty high plant endemism. Usually arid, isolated environments like that have loads of localized plants. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this particular capoc, for instance, that it, you, you would think that it, it can grow in other places. It's just only in those areas. So, yeah, it's quite localized. Cool. Did you, do you know that capoc trees are all around the world? Like, they're all over Madagascar. They're all over Africa. You think of them as such a special South American thing, but they, they're just everywhere in the world now. They're actually one of the most universal trees, I think. 
Yeah, no, I, the, the K-pop trees, they used to be the ones that they stuffed initially the, the life jackets from like World War II or something. And yep. it was not from South America. That was from Africa, I think. <laughs> People still make pillows uh, out of, out of K-pop uh, fuzz in Madagascar. Yeah, this particular one is different from, from others. Like, for instance, in the Amazon, one of the protruding trees that are, are super, super tall and beautiful in the Amazon rainforest that are, like, I don't know, 50, 60 meters tall is also a K-pop, but it is just very different. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have a green trunk. It is much, much higher. So, yeah, yeah, no, there's, there's a bunch of, of K-pops. Always a beautiful tree, though. Well, we want to make sure to leave lots of time for your number one pick, which you said you want to talk about extensively. So we'll move on to number four. <laughs> which is the, the Paramo of Ecuador. This is a very high elevation habitat, beautiful, unique habitat. Yeah, cold as well. <laughs> yep. So, yeah, so it's, it's uh, again, I think that my choices are based on, on, on beauty as well, I guess. So the Paramos of Ecuador are places that are really, really nice, are typically wet, very, very rich and diverse. So... The Paramos are this ecosystem that occurs normally at about 3,500 to over 4,000 meters in elevation. So let's do around 14,000 feet or so. And you would think that at that elevation, it, it, there cannot be a lot of variety or, or diversity. But then there is, especially in the tropics, because even though it is a really, really cold area, being here in the equator line, these paramos are going to be the hottest 4,000 meters in the world, right? <laughs> Even though right. it's quite cold. So it's all, right. it's all um, a relative. But uh, because of the elevation, it is obviously really cold and the, aim, and the air is thin. Plus, the other thing that you have to consider in this particular ecosystem is that it has a high sun exposure because we're in the equator line. Plus, yep. there is not... Because of, the, because of the height and because of the uh, equator line uh, location, it has uh, uh, to have adaptations to contrast the high sun uh, radiation. And so the plants that you find there are really, really short, and they all have adaptations for those things. Cold, actually dryness because it is not a super rainy area, and uh, radiation of the sun. So you have... Very, very interesting things. Uh, the, the most typical that you may remember is the cushion plants. When you go into the Paramo, there is this composition of plants that are cushion plants. There are these kind of rosettes that are very, very short in terms of the, the, the height referring to the soil. And they create this kind of a weird pillow that are rosettes. And, and you just step on those pillows and they are very cushiony. <laughs> Those are like the dominant plants, basically, right? There's there's not much grass or anything. There's just cushions, just the whole yeah, no, substrate elevation, is cushions. Exactly. So the cushion plants occur in higher elevations than what it is called the, the grassland paramo, that it is just a bit lower. But yeah, those are the dominant plant, the cushion plants. But in between, there's a bunch of other uh, plants that are also adapted to, to these elevations. So the cushion plants is a ton of mini plants that are together so close that only the top leaves show up, the rosettes and tops show up. Uh, to to do the photosynthesis, but then the other parts of the plant, so that they avoid freezing in um, because of the cold, then they are kind of inside that they are not touched by the wind, for instance, to to uh, avoid the wind chill effect and freeze their internal fluids. So it is an interesting ecosystem. There's a fantastic bird very high up there, the rufous-bellied seed snipe. Yeah, and I always see every time I see a picture of a rufous-bellied seed snipe, it's always got these little these little cushion plants in the same photo. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. I think in sure. the book it shows one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But then there's other other plants as well that makes a mosaic that it is just beautiful with a lot of different colors: purples, uh, browns, greens, yellows, because of the tiny, tiny flowers. Like if you if you just have a macro shot of the ecosystem there's like a ton of things there and they are all as i told you adapted for specific things there they are like really thick to avoid um being blown out by the wind they uh, many many of those have the, the the leaves with tiny white hairs to repel the sunlight the extra sunlight so that they don't get burned out by the sun hmm. another one of my favorite plants up there is this uh, espaletia the frilihon yeah which, yeah uh, uh -huh. 
get in the sort of northern Andes, and that has, like you said, it's got these little these little hairs on it. Little, they're very soft to the touch, like fluffy leaves. Exactly. So what it does is it they reflect out the sun, so that the the leaves don't burn out. You see, because it's just high high uh, radiation. Whereas other plants, they have these on the flowers, these parabolic shapes, putting on the focus of the parabola the important parts for the reproduction so that they collect a little extra heat. <laughs> so it is very huh. interesting. It has a ton of interesting things uh, and, and adaptations, this, this particular paramo. And yeah, it has a ton of birds that are, just as you said, specific and adapted to there. The seed snipe being one of those is a bird that I love and hate. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a very special bird. Everybody wants to see it. It's difficult and very easy to, to miss. And it is in areas that are super high and difficult to walk around because of the lack of air. And uh, it can be miserable if it is misty or rainy. Ah, it can be absolutely <laughs> terrible. And you may need to spend an hour or so. It could be right so. next to you and you won't see it. Exactly. <laughs> no, no. It's, yep. But, I mean, once you see it, it's just very tame and it just stays around. And it's you so take sad. pictures yeah. and it's beautiful. You get quality time. But... When you don't see it and you don't see it, you can just be in miserable times. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so for people who aren't birders or, or don't yeah. know, the seed snipes, that's a family of birds that's endemic to South America. And they're they're chicken-like, sort of partridge-like birds. Although kind of like long-winged and almost a little bit like sand grouse too. Very cool birds. And there's only... The interesting thing is that they are shorebirds. Is it actually in the shorebird family now, or is it... Uh, it is in the shorebird order. It's in a family that it is uh, seed snipes, but it's in the order of all the, of all the uh, yeah. shorebirds. Uh, strictly South American. Whenever I would take people to see the seed snipe, Americans often say, oh, we have snipe. And I'm like, no, nah, this, this is not a snipe. It's a seed snipe. Yeah. No, it's only like four species of them, so yeah. Yeah. Still missing one. Another famous resident of the Paramo, I guess, is the spectacled bear, which we chatted about with Keith a while ago. And, uh, yeah, often you see these very distinct Paramo plants just kind of ripped apart by a bear. You know, they kind of chew on these... Uh, the puyas, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or puya uh -huh. plants and stuff, yeah, yeah. It's amazing that a bear can find enough to eat at 14,000 feet. Yeah, it is. Yeah, well, that's why it has adapted. I mean, it's uh, omnivorous, and it eats the, the, the center of these puyas, uh, this kind of ground bromeliads, you see. <laughs> okay. Is it as kind of a starchy root vegetable type of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's starchy necessarily. It's just what is there to eat, I guess. So the hearts of these, wow. of these things, yeah. Huh. Yeah, and then you have, are there, and you have the condor flying around you. You know, it's, it's Ooh, a ton yeah. of things around. Yeah. <laughs> Very variable habitat. Sometimes when you've got, you know, blue skies, clear skies, the scenery is just absolutely incredible. And other times you'll get up there and it's just thick mist and it's difficult to see much at all. Yep. Yeah. Variable yeah. within a single day oftentimes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's a beautiful, beautiful location. Paramo is basically found from just into Peru. Is it into Panama, Andres? No, 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 no. It's not into Panama. It's, it's kind of the northern Andes, really. And then what are the high elevation habitats in Central America then? Are they just, are they more grassy, more like a true, like an alpine tundra? I think there are some isolated paramos like in, in Costa Rica. Exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah. In Costa Rica, yeah. Really? Uh, I, uh -huh. I just don't think that in Panama you get to the elevation that you need that. But uh, in Costa Rica, right. it is something like Paramo there too. Okay. Okay, so you mentioned the, the Paramo is quite a sort of a moister one. As you, as you get further south, it also has high elevation kind of tundra-like stuff. But then this becomes uh, Puna, which is your third favorite habitat. Yeah. So the Puna, the third uh, habitat that I, uh, that I put on my list, it's uh, probably only, only there because of, of the beauty of it, the vastness of the, of the <laughs> area, really. And it is a word that it is not as a habitat, but we... we we call it altiplanos, and it is these super high, high plateaus that are just flat and vast. And then you have, but you still are surrounded by these peaks of mountains in the distance. And so it, it just makes you feel small. <laughs> <laughs> 
that's kind of what I like about the, the punas. It is more like a grassy thing. You are in steel elevations of 4,000 meters, 14,000 feet or so. But it is more of a grassy area, like tufts of grasses here and there, and just flat and, and extensive. Uh, it's short grass, eh? Yeah, yeah, it's a short grass. It can be a, like two, three feet in some cases, depending on some specific uh, conditions of wind particularly. But yeah, most of the time it's just short. And it's interesting because it's an ecosystem that you just think, if you just go there in the middle of the day and just drive by, you can go hours on it, even in, in very straight roads, because it's, as I told you, it's altiplano, just flat and straight. You can go without seeing anything. But if you, like we do as when we do birding, um, that's what I do for a living, <laughs> when you do that and you just step out and start really looking for stuff, there is good variety of a lot of things. There is miners, there is canasteros, there is pipits, there is seed snipes, there is dotterels. Uh, that you just don't know how in the world they live there and how they manage to hide in such short vegetation and uh, how is it diverse with only being miles and miles and miles of high Andes grass. <laughs> so it's it's a deceiving, deceiving ecosystem. Where little streams, little mountain streams come through the Puna. Sometimes you get these little, these little bogs, these little bofedales. Um, uh -huh. There's a very cool bird that's up there. Oh yeah, uh, the the diadem sandpiper plover, which is one of the world's best birds, in my opinion. Yeah, I know for sure, for sure. You you get some bogs in some in some particular uh, spots, as you said, in in, in these um, creeks. Yeah, and that that's for sure a special bird. Beautiful. So the Puna runs basically from Peru down through Bolivia and then deep down into the southern cone into Argentina and Chile, right? Yeah, Argentina and Chile, yeah, exactly. At some point in the south, does it kind of merge with the uh, like lower elevation grasslands or is there a sharp distinction between the montane grasslands and then just the... Yeah. It, it turns into Patagonian um, grasslands. I don't know how how you put it on the on the book of um, habitats of the world, but it turns into a different habitat afterwards. Yes, farther south, like it's more more Patagonian. Mm -hmm. I think there are some species which you find down in Patagonia, which are also up in the Puna as well. I think it because you're getting colder as you go further south. I think the habitat kind of stays a little similar. Um, some of these canisteros, things like uh, lesser rears and stuff like that, are found uh, found in both. Exactly, in some in some cases, like, but but the thing is that you have to add to the coldness of the Puna areas in areas closer to the to the equator. You add in the Patagonia the latitude, so it gets even colder in in the high elevations, and so there is these birds that actually adapt to lower elevations in those areas like the condors in chile go down to sea level in the southern parts huh. uh, but wow. it, they go in the puna only in peru and in in the paramos in ecuador you see and like that a couple other things too there's another cool animal which you get up on the puna it's like a like a wild miniature llama um, called the vicuña it's quite a, yeah. quite a cool little animal you see up there yeah 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 the vicuñas are are beautiful Light, uh, families of vicuñas are just make the scene just more beautiful when you drive through those areas of, of uh, yeah. northern Argentina. It's just beautiful. Uh -huh. That's the habitat of the viscacha as well, right? Yeah, the the viscachas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In some rocky places, yeah. I saw a vicuña had tried to go through a barbed wire fence and got stuck, and then it, it you know, it'd been there for months and there was this kind of skeleton just hanging over this this fence there but it was very it was a very sad that's a sad scene. story yeah yeah i i know i think um you remember phil's story about uh having to herd those llamas up on the <laughs> on the puna that was yeah, uh, yeah. that's one of my enduring images of the habitat yep absolutely yep, yep, for sure yeah uh, <laughs> that, that was just a funny story phil is amazing it's one of the greatest stories I've ever heard. Yeah, yeah. Just to finish this particular one, the the lakes that sometimes are formed in the in the Puna are also beautiful. There is this 
particular beautiful lake yeah. in northern Argentina that it is really, really large. And it holds three species of flamingos, a giant coot, horned coot, uh, Andean avocet. So that adds to the, to the region as well. And it's this vast, really flat and uh, not very deep lakes that, that, that also uh, make... Laguna de los Pozuelos. Pozuelos, yeah, exactly. Well, that's a fantastic place. Ah, fantastic place. I went up there on public transport, but there, w there was only one bus a day to go up and one bus to come down. And um, yeah, we almost missed the bus down. <laughs> and it's not it's not the sort of place you want to get stuck overnight because oh, it gets damn cold. There's, you know. Yeah, yeah. You see, when, when we do the Northern Argentina tour, we have to drive from the nearest town that uh, we can get a hotel on. And we have to yeah. get there, like drive there in the dark so that we are there at crack of dawn. And it is cold. It is extremely yep. cold. It's probably some of the <laughs> coldest I've ever been because, you know, it's just there is just not enough humidity to have anything frozen necessarily. But it is just colder than than uh, than uh, zero degrees Celsius. It's just cold and windy. So, yeah. I think the flamingos sometimes get frozen into the water, don't they? And then they kind of oh, they've got to wait for the for the water to thaw before they can kind of start moving around again. <laughs> I don't know about that. That should be another <laughs> funny thing. Someone, to see. Eh? Maybe it's an old wives' tale. Can you imagine that stilty bird just stuck the feet there, just, mm, standing in the ice? They're tough. They're tough birds, eh? Yeah, no, it's crazy. It's such. It's such a weird habitat to me because intuitively you tend to think of montane habitats as being kind of uh, slopes and peaks and, and, you know, not a lot of space, like big flat open space. The place I've spent most time in this habitat is in Bolivia, where the Altiplano expands into this massive swath that's like 40% of the country. And it just goes on and on. And I mean, it's just an absolutely vast area that is all sort of 13,000 to 15,000 feet with higher peaks and then as you yeah. say there's lagoons and flamingos and it just there's something counterintuitive about it to me it just it's kind of uncanny that you have i guess the tibetan plateau is something like that well i couldn't tell you having been there but yeah i have been to this plateau so <laughs> yeah it is it me is, neither just as i said it is incredible so it just feels so tiny in this vast ecosystem that's what i love it it's just so scenic yeah i love it so we'll move up to Andres's second favorite South American habitat. And this is uh, montane forests have just done very well uh, throughout this series, and that's going to continue to be the case. So this habitat is cloud forest and yungus. A little bit sneaky there, trying to yeah, sneak yeah. two habitats in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yep, well, you know, these I are actually well, separate in, our, in the book. Uh, as, yes. But, but go on. Okay, so... Basically, I lump them together here in the two habitats because of the topographic or orographic composition of both uh, that are kind of have th that they both kind of have the same feeling when you go out there walking and, and, and birding and, and uh, you know, just being in the place. So, uh, yes, in the book, it is separated the Yungas being only down from like probably southern Peru, uh, Bolivia and Argentina and only in the east side of, of the Andes, whereas the cloud forests are in the west and the east side of the Andes, but farther north in uh, Peru, in, in Ecuador, in Colombia, and even in, uh, living in, in uh, Venezuela. But to me, being, having birded in both of these places, in Argentina, the Yungas, in, the, in Brazil, and in Colombia, the, the cloud forests, the feeling is the, what I like about it is, is the topography, is being in an area where your feet are in a trail that is the same height as the canopy of a tall tree that it is just 20 feet from you, you know? And you are seeing from time to time the birds at eye height, tanagers and, and stuff, and other small birds. And then you have to look up quite high to see other birds because you have the other trees that are on the other side of the slope and it is just much higher up. And in between the trees and the mosses and all that, you have beautiful views of the landscape. Sometimes when you are above the clouds and you just feel that you are above a carpet of clouds that cover the, the slopes of mountains. That's why I chose this particular habitat because of the mixture of that mountains, clouds and forest. So both give you kind of the same, the same deal, probably Yungas less so because it is not as, as, 
uh, wet, so there's less clouds. But yeah, in general, it's, it's, a, it's a cloud forest. Yeah, I love it. One thing that Ken and I mentioned in our kind of like uh, montane forest, you know, segments was that it's a kind of disproportionate amount of like really good looking birds in this kind of habitat. <laughs> you know, you yeah. see, there's a lot of very beautiful birds. It's interesting. I came to the same conclusion as well. I put a, 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 a mm. bullet point here when I was doing this about hummingbirds and tanagers. It just is exactly what you just said. It's crazy how these mountainous habitats just create beauty. <laughs> yeah. Another interesting thing is that that those groups that you just mentioned, because most your diversity tends to increase, you know, as you get to lower elevations. Mm-hmm. But those groups tend to reach the peak of their diversity in in those uh, habitats, in those mountain yep. habitats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For for instance, Ecuador, because of having the Andes and West Slope and East Slope of the Andes and being really tiny, has like 137 plus species, I don't know, of hummingbirds. Whereas the whole of Brazil, I think that it is around the 80 species, if I'm not wrong. I mean, it's for sure lower than 100 in Brazil, the whole of Brazil. Yeah. That tells you. It's crazy how, how these, these ecosystems that are mountainous with the moist, uh, they just create this vi- diversity on, on hummingbirds particularly. And for sure, in order to have hummingbirds, you have to have the flowers. And uh, also that's another beautiful thing about this particular habitat is the amount of beautiful flowers, mostly on the red tones, um, but then a few other things as well. So, uh, yeah. No, it's. It, I just have a picture in my head of a, of a cloud forest. Particularly, I started guiding myself almost twenty years ago now in the cloud forest in uh, the Upper Tandayapa Valley, and uh, I just remember going there, uh, crack of dawn, and having a sunrise in this mossy forest. It's just beautiful. So I think that I chose all these things, all these habitats based out of beauty for me. I guess <laughs> mostly. Yeah, fair enough. So before we get to your favorite habitat, we'll, we're going to throw in your least favorite, which we've been doing the last few episodes. And this for you is um, flat croplands. Yeah. So again, is beauty or lack of beauty the main uh, <laughs> factor <laughs> that uh, that affects my choice of, of habitats, I guess? And the thing is that me, I am from Quito, Ecuador. I live at... 3,000 meters is my house and I have been surrounded by mountains all the time and whenever I go to areas that are just vast and flat are not particularly attractive and when that also has cropland or a man-made destruction of habitats and, 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 and that just, just is the worst for me so that's why I chose that but you know sometimes you have to bird those areas because there are some good birds in those areas too so what are examples of places that have this uh, flat cropland in South America? Yeah, I was, I was trying to avoid that <laughs> because it is a tour that I actually <laughs> do love. So it's a bit contradictory, yeah? And, uh, and I wanted to avoid it because it is, a tri- is, is also a trip that we do that it is uh, a, a good selling one. And I don't want to uh, have people <laughs> thinking that it is a bad thing. And this is the Pantanal. There is this particular portion in the northern Pantanal that it is like that. It is a lot of ranches. And you are birding around those areas in, in this road in the Transpantaneira. And you have this cattle. There's like 200 uh, cattle just passing by in the Transpantaneira next to you. And you have to stop until the, the dust settles, until you can look for the birds that are in the vast areas there. Um, so in terms of beauty, I always tell people it's just not beautiful, those areas, particularly in the northern part. But the amount of things that you see there are incredible. So again, I have to right. go back. I chose my habitat based on beauty and the things that that fill my heart, I guess, when I am out. Because it is not attractive to me at all. But then the Pantanal is one of the most incredible places to find wildlife, birds, mammals. And, and to have photography of those things, uh, multiple chances of the same birds make it easier for photographers or for birds with cameras. So it is an awesome ecosystem. It's just not my yeah, favorite. I think you sort of grazing areas, your grazing areas with big open grassy areas, they, they tend to be quite good for birding. But, you know, some of the other crop, crops, you know, your sort of uh, oil palms and your, your bananas and your palmitos and stuff are really 
yeah, not uh, not great. So it's quite a. I think they're actually covered differently in the book. One is one is a sort of cropland, and one is a grazing land. But yeah, certainly those grazing lands can be fantastic for for birding. Yeah, yeah, particularly in those in those areas that were mentioned. Yeah, but the the flat croplands. I mean, cannot even mention those like I don't know palm oil palm plantations. <laughs> it's just terrible, and you don't oh, normally terrible. bird terrible. it there, and you no, you just have to go by, you know. But I was thinking yep. on a place that you actually do spend time on tour or, or just uh, on your own when yeah. you visit places. So that's why I didn't really include into this particular choice of habitat those things like the palm grooves, but uh, instead some place that you actually do bird. The other crop that could be okay for birding sometimes are coffee plantations. If they're, if they're shade coffee, they can, you know, there's left some of the, the, the canopy trees and stuff. They can actually be quite good for birding. I think that's why it's important, you know, if you're a coffee drinker, to try and get this kind of shade-grown coffee rather than just uh, sun coffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for sure. For sure, for sure. But, I mean, coffee as well, it is not in flat areas either. Normally, coffee or no. it, oh, it sure, tends to sure. be in, yeah. in, in yeah. more like a slopey area. So that, that yep. uh, removes yeah, you're right. the... Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Time for the grand finale. Andres's favorite habitat in uh, the continent, the region of South America... And this is the Amazon rainforest, and, and he particularly emphasizes just the mosaic of micro ecosystems, micro habitats. I have to say, this habitat is just kind of mysterious to me. I, I've spent a fair bit of time to it, but it is just so complex and perplexing. And uh, yeah, I, I'm excited to hear you tell us more about it because I know you've spent a lot of time down there. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. This is my number one favorite ecosystem or, or biome or a habitat in general. I am talking particularly about the lowland rainforest of the Amazon Basin. And uh, the, the vast diversity, as you mentioned, of this particular area is incredible, is impressive. You see, when we do a tour in Argentina or in the States, you cover 2,000 miles with a potential list of 300 birds and you end up getting 160. You see, you put on a car 2,000 miles. When you go to the lowland yep. Amazon on any particular lodge or place, you basically get to the lodge and you walk five days around um, using paddle canoes and that, and you have a potential list of 500. <laughs> you see? So the, the, the amount of birds in just a tiny, tiny bit of land compared to other places it's just overwhelming in many cases and that's one of the things that i love about this particular area the amazon rainforest um uh, similar levels of diversity for everything else too right for trees and insects oh, and yeah. herbs and, oh, and yeah. just across the board oh yeah for sure for sure it's diversity in general biodiversity in general frogs are incredible in that area uh, the trees i mean yeah it's something i cannot remember that the, the the, the numbers, but I used to remember that in an hectare there is like a, a few hundred species of trees in just like two acres. Yep. Uh -huh. So it's just crazy. Yep. No, no, it's it's impressive. It's in, incredible. And the thing is that I think the insect diversity is just mind-boggling. I mean, it's just yeah, it's like <laughs> you're talking 20, you know. 20 million species of mosquitoes. <laughs> It feels like. <laughs> no, actually, in a good rainforest, you don't even have that many mosquitoes because you have no, all the different right. things that actually eat the mosquitoes and keep the population down. So yeah. that's actually a good... Uh, an, I think uh, beetles are very uh, yeah, very specious, aren't they? Very diverse. Well, butterflies for sure. Um, but uh, yeah, frogs, uh, snakes, and, and mammals. Mammals, of course. I, I think one of the misconceptions that people have you know before they've gone to a tropical rainforest or you know a jungle is that they're going to see all this wildlife but it's actually one of the most challenging habitats to actually see things yeah 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 it's, it's quite challenging um especially when you're birding the 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 uh, terra firme forest for sure is quite challenging and um when i used to guide i used to live in the amazon some uh, a couple of lodges down there in the ecuadorian amazon and people would always come here and say, like, oh, we're going to see a jaguar, right? And I'm like, ah, not really. <laughs> it's kind of difficult. How, well, how about an ocelot? It's like, ah, oh, not really. So, yeah, it is difficult. It is difficult, but you end up seeing good things. And that's why you are always together with a trained 
guy that knows the things, uh, the local guys, if they are indigenous communities that live in an area, they make the best local guides because they know the forest really, really well. So that, that is a challenging ecosystem for sure. I was going to say that it is not the most comfortable to be in because of the humidity, the heat and all that. But you, you put up with all that just for being in the mecca of naturalism in the world, I would say. I mean, it's, it's crazy, the diversity. And, and I was um, mentioning about the mosaic of microhabitats or microecosystems that this um, area has. And it's quite incredible. Um, you see, when you are flying into the Amazon, into the lowland Amazon from the plane, you just see this carpet of green. Or when you are on top of a canopy tower in, I don't know, Cristalino in, in, in Brazil or in, in Ecuador in Peru, and you manage to be above the canopy and you just see a vast uh, carpet of green, you would think that it is pretty uniform. And in a way it is, but when you go to... Uh, really explore it in detail, you can see that it is a mosaic. So, um, for instance, mainly you have wet uh, or, or a floated forest and dry forest in the, in, in the lowland Amazon. The dry forest can be seasonal or it can be permanent. And so typically the, the permanent one tends to co be called igapo and it is floated with black waters that are just local waters uh, that are black because of the tannins of the decaying vegetation. Okay, and tend to be very slow-moving streams or even um, on these lakes, and these uh, oxbow lakes. And around them, there is this uh, floated forest that are palms or mangroves and different things like that. So there you have one ecosystem. Varsia is seasonal, but that is not in Ecuador, but in, in farther down the Amazon in, uh, in wetter areas. Um, and then you have the big rivers, like in, um, in Ecuador, we have the biggest one called the Napo River. It's quite, quite, quite wide. And you have only around the white rivers, in the sides of the white rivers, you have this riparian forest that has, um, that is an ecosystem on, on its own, that it is not really vast at all because it's only in the borders of the river. And then when you go farther in, you have the Terra Firme Forest. It's a type of forest that is never floated even though it rains like crazy in the rainy season it kind of drains well into the rivers and the streams but the these areas are never really floated completely so th that's why it's called the terra firme forest and in terra firme forest is the most diverse part of the of the forest but also it is the biggest of the ecosystems because uh, it's it's just uh, vast let's say and within the terra firme forest is where you would put a canopy tower so that you can build up a structure to sustain and to explore the canopy. And you can say that even the lower portions of the terra firme forest, like the ground portions, are a different ecosystem compared to the canopies. Right. So the, it is said that something like 90, 85, 90% of the activity on the rainforest occurs in the canopies, like birds flying and uh, frogs in, in the bromeliads and mosses and all the different things are in the canopy. And not as many uh, interactions occur in the bottom of the forest because it is an area that, has, that receives less light. In some really, really good rainforest, the amount of light that reaches the, the ground is only like 5% I've, been, uh, I've read. Wow. Uh, but then those things that occur in the lower portions of the forest are very specific, very challenging to see, but very, very beautiful and, and rewarding, like the birds that a lot of people want to see there, armadillos, other frogs like the poison frogs. Yeah, a bunch of different things occur in those, in those lowland areas. Uh, sorry, in the, in the ground levels. But then when you go and, and explore the canopy, that's when you have a huge amount of tanagers, toucans, uh, monkeys. Um, yeah, a, a lot Raptors. of different things. I've always had a weird feeling when... When I was on a canopy tower in a tropical forest, it's almost like you're on a prairie or something. It's like all the action's there, and there's this kind of soft carpet of vegetation, and you almost forget about the whole world below you. It's yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah. kind of disconcerting. 
it's 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 an interesting comparison that's for sure because that's 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 the carpet of green that i was mentioning before and that's the only thing that you can see from the plane or from the kind of tower and yeah underneath is like a floated or like a you know yeah we, we know it's like underwater about the almost. bottom of the of the sea yeah exactly yep. <laughs> exactly 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 but that's the interesting thing but the one ecosystem that it is very interesting i was mentioning about the big rivers is the river islands that form in these big 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 rivers and that is probably the most interesting of the ecosystems in the lowland amazon because of the the dynamic way how these river islands actually yeah. happen some river islands that are big and they have been there for ages have actually grown into trees and to forest within the island but then there is these river islands that are seasonal that only have some scrub and some shrubs and some grasses and then some that have vegetation that are right in the middle between these shrubs and grasses into some more scrubby or short trees. And all these river islands hold different birds that are not found elsewhere in the Amazon. So there is a endemism that comes to super, super specific and tiny portions of land that are these river islands. And it is only like a few thousand feet from a shore but these birds choose to live specifically and only in the river islands and there is a ton a ton a ton of things that are only there in the river islands and nowhere else in the entire amazon so that's uh, an interesting ecosystem it's a bizarre phenomenon really you know when you when you're on this little island and you can see the bank on both sides and you're thinking these birds are only here and then the next place they are is like you know miles downstream at another little island you know but but they're not just over there on the edge of the river you know it's, it's a very bizarre concept yeah no it's crazy you see i also read um somebody told me that because of these river islands have less a uh, shadow in terms of the 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 covering from taller trees and are much more open in areas that are super tropical and super um hot in a sunny sunny day there is many birds that have adapted to the river islands that only live there that have a specific evolutionary adaptations to heat by having a warmer body temperature compared to the same genius of bird that it is inside the forest. Uh, specifically, wow. for instance, wow. like the, the spine tails. The spine tails that live in river islands in the Amazon have warmer body temperatures, apparently, compared to the ones that live inside the darker and deeper rainforest. I can just see a scientist now doing some work on there with a little thermometer sort of <laughs> testing the temperature of the, <laughs> the spine tails over here and over there. That's no, quite a bizarre yeah, it's crazy, eh? study project. Yeah, and, and how the birds also uh, particularly adapt to a specific environment is something that I really love. Like when I go bird the river islands, there's a bunch of different um, spine tails and other things, and they all kind of have a very, very similar vocal vocalization mm. and so it's very difficult to distinguish between different species in if you are not really 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 trained they all sound very very similar and that's because the acoustics the birds also have adapted to a specific acoustics and that doesn't only happen in the river islands but in in any place in the world really you adapt to your acoustics or how you sing to the ecosystem so that it is more effective um, the usage and so all the birds on the river island sound very very similar to <laughs> in this, this this tiny piece of land yeah i know with some birds that you get on on fast moving rivers they tend to have very high pitched vocalizations just so you know they can be heard by other um by other birds but i guess maybe with the i think the river islands they tend to be quite sort of loud and sharp easy to hear from a from a distance yeah yeah exactly 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 so yeah Basically, that's that's what I really love the Amazon is that in in a in a walking distance you can hit all these different micro ecosystems and each one of them has a specific birds that only live in this particular micro ecosystem. So that's that's what makes this particular um, habitat the, the the mecca of naturalism in in general. I was going to say, yeah, on, on, you might do like a short tour, like, you know, five days or whatever to the Amazon. And on this day, you'll do the canopy. And the next day, you'll, you'll paddle around the lagoon. And the next day, you do the river islands. And then you go to the, the terra firma forest. 
and kind of all the time you're visiting these slightly different places and getting different birds. It's a very uh, exciting visit, really. When you, especially uh, down in the in the Napo lodges from Ecuador, there and and the guides as well are just absolutely outstanding. So you know, I really recommend to anybody to to visit the Amazon. Yeah, so basically what you have is, is, is these lodges that in their backyard have 500 species of birds. <laughs> yep. So it is also very, I mean, I was really lucky to live in the Amazon for over two years and be there many, many, many weeks a year so that I can really get a good feeling of all these things and understand it quite well and, and, and learn quite well, not only in terms of birds, but the frogs and all that. But I can get for instance, other colleague guides that they have not spent this much time in the Amazon, that they need to go there, uh, lead a tour, and uh, that is really challenging, that they feel it extremely, um, what's the word I want to put here? Uh, intimidating. Intimidated, exactly. Because yeah. I mean, just try to try to see that. <laughs> I know that feeling exactly. I mean, go into the Amazon, and you, you, you know when when you when you uh, do a tour in some places that you know that you can find these species here, but then you you don't find any other thing in this particular spot that you're hitting for a day. Not easy. So you just have to study on a daily basis what you can have in ten days, right? But you that they are separated by two hundred kilometers, and you know, whereas in the Amazon, anything can happen. Within 20 meters <laughs> yep. that you move this, 500 species, I mean, 500 species, yep. It's a lot more information to retain. Yeah, One exactly. of the things so that's, that's always that's amazed me in the Amazon is when you're with a really good local guide, you know, you maybe have some birds you want to find, some target birds, and you'll be walking through the forest for hours, and then suddenly the local guide will stop and say, okay, here we try for X bird. And, and you play a call... <laughs> And then the bird comes in and then you continue and you never see or hear that bird again. And I just don't know, do they just know there's a territory there or is there a microhabitat that they've figured out? But that's just that kind of place. I think they know the territories, those guys. It's both things though. It's both things, just exactly as you mentioned. Okay. I think that's all we have time for today. Many thanks to Andres for sharing his favorite habitats from uh, the Neotropical region. It's been a really fascinating chat. Really uh, whets my appetite to get back there. Ooh, me Soon. too. <laughs> for a final sound, we've had a little chat and we've decided to go for a mammal and, and, a, and a sound that's really evocative of the, of the lowland rainforest. It's the, the howler monkey. So many thanks, Andres. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And we'll catch you all again soon.